Hello, you are listening to The Piobot, a podcast created by the Lewis and Clark Pioneer Log to help you stay connected to the ideas, projects, events, and humans that make up Lewis and Clark College. This podcast is coming to you every other Friday at the same time as the Pioneer Log newspaper. If you want to find out more about what's going on on campus, be sure to pick up a hard copy of the Pioneer Log or check out our website, piolog.com, to read our articles online. I'm your host, Nagasi Brown. It's Friday, December 6th, and this is our last episode of the first semester of the Piopod. We've had so much fun producing this for y'all, and we're excited to come back after winter break. On today's episode, we'll be featuring one of LC's hidden gems. Lewis and Clark has one of the premier speech and debate teams in the Pacific Northwest. We are bringing on the director, Joe Gant, to talk about the history of the team, which stretches all the way back to when LC was Albany College. Then we'll have Kenneth Lejaw, a third-year LC who specializes in speech, to discuss the different events within speech. Then we'll have two debaters on to do a sample debate. They'll slow it down, but normally debates sound something like this. That is so intense. I cannot speak that fast. Here's the interview with Mia Eichel and Joe Gant. I'm joined today by Joe Gant. He is the Director of Speech and Debate at Lewis and Clark. This is his eighth year directing the program. He is here to talk about the history of speech and debate at Lewis and Clark. Joe, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be here. So let's start with some of the general history of the team. How long has it been at Lewis and Clark? Well, it's hard to tell the exact year that it started, but we do know that the University of Oregon and Albany College, which was the former name of Lewis and Clark, debated sometime in the early 1900s. It was what we can tell one of the first debates ever to be held on the West Coast. There were a lot of debates happening on the East Coast at that point, um, but the West Coast hadn't had that phenomenon yet. Um, So it continued through the life of the name change and then continued when it moved to Portland. And it's been a continual part of the student life at Lewis and Clark since that time period. Some people might notice that the team is called LC Forensics, Mm -hmm. and I know within that there's speech and debate. Can you explain why it's been called Forensics? It's actually a throwback to some of the ancient Greek way of thinking about speaking, Hmm. that there was forensic speaking, which was legal speaking, deliberative speaking, which was political speaking, and epidiectic speaking, which is like ceremonial, funeral eulogies, things of that sort. Mm -hmm. Forensic speaking was legal speaking. And as it transitioned into high schools and colleges across the country, the idea of forensics was meant to be training toward a legal education. So you could learn how to speak in order to better yourself when you went to law school. Now, at this point, a lot of our students are not actually pursuing legal education. We have students in a variety of different majors, not just pre-law, but that's where the history of it comes from. Most high schools have started to use speech and debate as opposed to forensics. We've actually moved and we're rebranding ourselves as speech and debate at Lewis and Clark as opposed to LC Forensics. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So about how many students do you have in the program? It varies year to year. 20 is our average. And so they're divided roughly half into speaking events and half into debating events. Okay. What do meetings and practices usually look like? So we meet once a week for a general team meeting. That is your announcements, when we're leaving for this trip, goals for the team, things of that sort. 
but the majority of our work is done either individually or done on one-on-one -on -one practices. We're fortunate that in addition to myself, we have two coaches, one on the debate side, one on the speech side. In debate, it's Nadia Steck. In speech, it's Mike Catless. And they do a lot of one-on-one -on -one appointments with the students. Those one-on-one -on -one appointments can be more general in nature. They can be about speech construction, editing. On the debate side, it's putting a, a case together or maybe going back to a debate that happened at the last tournament and saying, what could we have done better in that particular debate to be more successful? So the nice thing about our one-on-one -on -one settings, number one, it allows our practices to work around students' schedules. They are able to not feel like they have to change their academic progress in order to fit the team. But number two, it allows us to really focus with what that student needs as opposed to just trying to have a one-size-fits-all approach to coaching. It sounds like you travel a lot for tournaments. Mm -hmm. What are some of the main tournaments that you participate in? So we, we travel in basically three different clusters. We travel regionally, and some of those are local tournaments. So we'll have some tournaments on our campus, some that are as close as Linfield, Pacific. Mm -hmm. We'll have some that are a little bit farther away regionally, like Spokane or tournaments in California. Mm -hmm. And then we do travel a national schedule as well. Our students are competitive with virtually every team in the country. And we want to make sure that they're seeing that competition of, of the top students across the country. So mm -hmm. this year alone, we've traveled to Illinois. We'll be traveling to Missouri, traveling to Texas. And our national competitions this year are in California, Wisconsin, and Illinois. Wow, that's a lot of events. It is. And there's a lot of <laughs> juggling to make sure that every student is getting the opportunities to be successful as possible. But the one thing that we try to do is we try to support the, the region and make sure that we're going to tournaments. This weekend we have a tournament in Longview, Washington. So we wanna make sure that we're an active member of our region, but at the same time, we want our students competing against the best as much as possible. Great. What kinds of tournaments are hosted at Lewis and Clark? We host a college event every October. So that is one of the Northwest Forensics Conference's championship tournaments, or what they call a designated tournament. Mm -hmm. And so this year we had about 35 colleges and universities, mostly from the Northwest, a few from outside the region who came to compete. Mm -hmm. In January, the weekend before school starts, we will host the Gene Ward Invitational, which is a high school tournament that is actually one of the national qualifiers for the Tournament of Champions uh, nationwide. And that event will probably expect over 50 high schools from about 10 to 15 different states wow. to come to the tournament. And then we host a summer speech and debate camp for mm -hmm. high school students, and that runs for about two weeks during July. And this last year, we were able to combine that with an effort to help the Portland Urban Debate League get started. They're in their first year of trying to offer debate education to Title I high schools. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to coordinate our debate camp with a workshop for, for those students. That's wonderful. 
And I know that you have a debate tournament that's held in the Oregon State Penitentiary. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I've been doing this for about two years. Lewis and Clark has had an association with the Capital Toastmasters program there Mm -hmm. for about six years. But about two years ago, I was asked if I could take over teaching the debate class. So for about eight Mondays during the summer, I will go to the Oregon State Penitentiary and teach about a two-hour debate class to incarcerated individuals. And the information that they're learning there, they'll use for debates within their own program. But then in October, we're also able to have a tournament, which is really one of a kind, where we invite 12 different colleges to debate four teams from OSP. And it is a large event that allows the incarcerated individuals to debate college students, and it's a valuable experience for everybody involved. Yeah, I'm sure. Can you talk about what kinds of skills and tools does speech and debate provide students? So first of all, it's confident advocacy. Mm. Being able to not only have an argument or have a claim, but be able to justify that argument with compelling evidence performed in a way that is engaging and appealing to an audience. Especially at this particular moment in our nation's history, I think you know being able to make arguments that are backed up by evidence are so important. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's one thing that I think our students are able to both bring to the program but also get out of the program. Many students will go to their classes and sometimes have to say, okay, maybe I need to dial this back a little Mm -hmm. bit because I'm so used to to arguing all weekend long. And sometimes they still do that in their classes Mm -hmm. and that's okay. (laughs) But the second part of it is a willingness to learn because the first edit is never the last edit. In fact, a lot of our speeches go through 15 to 20 edits. Every tournament, we're looking at our ballots. Maybe the edit is just changing one line. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's changing the entire focus of the speech in some way, shape, or form. So a willingness to adapt in that particular way. And then finally, just bringing ideas to the table. One of the things that we really treasure about our program is the ability for our students, both in speech and debate, to be able to have the issues that they feel are important and to be able to talk about them, not just on our campus, but to be able to talk about them on virtually every campus in America that we go to. Final question. I sure. want to talk about how successful the team is. We, we've had a good run of success over recent years. Uh, last year, we had two national champions. Allie Knighton was the national champion at the NFA National Tournament. That's National Forensics Association mm-hmm. in informative speaking. Mm-hmm. Allie's a sophomore. Well, yeah. was a sophomore last year. is a junior this year. And Aaron Lutz was the national champion in extemporaneous speaking. And Aaron was a first-year student last year. So we had a young team, but a young team that did exceptionally well. And the success goes all throughout our program. We had two students, Rain McDonough and Mary Talamantes, who finished in semifinals of debate nationals. We had students that were in elimination rounds of a variety of different events. And yes, success is an important part, but it's the internal link to education. The education comes out of that desire to be competitively successful. It's an important part, and yes, we care a lot about it. But at the same time, we try to have fun on our tournaments. We try to say the things that we want to say. 
and then the success tends to come along the way. And so really proud of this team. We're still young. We actually only have one senior on the team at this point. And so there's a lot of potential for every student that's on this team as we go forward. Great. Okay, well, thank you so much for talking to me. Absolutely. Next up, I'll be talking with Kenneth Leja. He is a philosophy and rhetoric and media studies double major. He's been on the speech and debate team for three years and also competed in speech and debate in high school. But he has shifted his focus more towards speech at LC and is now a coach, so he's going to give us a crash course on speech. Thanks so much for joining us, Kenneth. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course. So can you first talk about the difference between speech and debate and why you chose speech. So speech and debate, I think they're just both kind of under the umbrella of forensics. And there are people that do both of them because they kind of happen at the same spot. But mostly speeches are a lot more like individual and like structure oriented. Like you're standing up and performing a speech like how you would in a classroom. Whereas in debate, a lot of times you are not standing, you're mostly just speaking to one other person back and forth. In speech, a lot of it is very individual performance heavy, and it's not as much dependent on your ability to interact with other people. And so I think that it is uh, great skills being learned in both of them. I just felt that uh, speech was more of a, you know, it could more, I could improve upon what I was seeing like how I was performing and like things that I could work on towards myself and less so engaging with other people in, you know, a variety of environments. Okay, so let's talk about how speeches are judged. Yeah, Um, so speeches in general are judged in terms of three different categories. Like there are a total of 10 different speech formats. The three uh, major like groups of speech are interpretive events, platform events, and limited preparation events. The interpretive events are, people sometimes call it competitive acting, in that you're interpreting pieces of work in a way that every individual style, you can bring forth an argument that you're making, and you're able to show it in a way that you quite literally are embodying the work. Um, So those different types of styles are um, dramatic interpretation, which is focusing on character development over time and how that is influenced by the work. And interrupts, you're holding a book at the same time. So you're quite literally like interacting with a piece. And then duo is the only event where you are, um, you perform it with another person and like how they specifically communicate to each other. Um, In prose, you are presenting a story, so there's a lot of, like, emotion building, a lot of how you cut and how you want to interact with the piece itself, and it's much more heavy in terms of what you're actually saying versus how you're saying it. And the final one is, the final two, rather, are um, poi and poetry. Program oral interpretation is the idea that you can draw on any piece of literature that exists that has been published And then you can present it as a program where you have more than one piece. How do your pieces interact with each other? They could have conflicting ideas. They could be by different people. But that event is relatively new because it's built off of poetry interpretation, which people often see it as you are doing the same thing, except you can only have poetry instead Mm -hmm. of 
like literally anything that's existing. And so Poi is definitely developing in a lot of new ways. Poetry is very heavy on being able to have different pieces interact with each other huh. in really cool ways. Cool. Um, and then so the other events are platforms. All of those are like the purpose of platforms in general are just being able to uh, present unique arguments. So like an informative speech is educating the audience. The general like breakdown of that speech is something that's interesting. It's application, like how it is affecting the world and then the implications of it. Our very own Allie Knighton actually won informative at NFA this last year and her informative speech was on our understanding of women and our characterizing them as hysterical and the historical context of why hysteria was commonly associated with women like there was like a, a lot of like physical connotations with it a long time ago and then brought it to the modern context of how we interpret the Me Too movement and how we interpret the uh, the appointment of Kavanaugh and how people mm. saw women's credibility in front of like large audiences in a really unique way and it was definitely impactful and yeah. so uh, her her winning that title is definitely well deserved. CA is much more like structure analytical. It's a specific artifact, so a communicative event, and then you apply some form of modern model to it, and it's just being able to interpret a communicative event through modern discourse of how communication takes place. Can you give me an example? So the one that I'm currently working on right now is there's this uh, one cold night thing that are, is going on in a lot of like rural cities where people are sleeping on the streets to raise awareness to homelessness. It, it definitely has like an interesting like is that useful? Like, mm -hmm. is that just commodifying homelessness? And so um, I'm currently working with, like, applying a correct model to it to draw out, like, implications of what this kind of communicative event actually means. So the next one is ADS, very similar to Persuader Info, but it's just humorous. And so it's supposed mm -hmm. to be the idea of, like, if somebody was giving an after-dinner speech, and hence ADS, what, uh, what kind of speech would that be? And so it would probably be very captivating and humorous in itself but there are still like underlying purposes for why you're giving the speech and so there are definitely serious undertones that can you know be drawn out through humor and we can approach problems through a way that is humorous and you don't necessarily have to have the solutions to those problems but they can be very insightful just by talking about it in that atmosphere and then persuade is perhaps um one of the more call to action speeches it is definitely uh the main like catalyst for persuades is unlike an info there is a it's cause effect solution and the solutions part of your speech is you are literally providing a solution like you provide the audience some way to change the things that you're talking about and provide some form of insight on how the problems that you've presented could actually be solved in a realistic way and so there's definitely always the paradigm of how do you engage with like real-world, large-scale problems in a way that people actually have an ability to, like, impact and yeah. solve. Yeah. And so there's a lot that goes into Persuade, not just in the speech itself, but how useful your solutions are and how you can, like, really engage with, like, complex issues. Yeah. And then so the final, like, two events um, are actually just limited preps. They are uh, extemporaneous and impromptu. Basically, you're given a question, an extemp, 
you have 30 minutes to research it, and then you give a speech on it for seven minutes. Wow. And so there's no preparation ahead of time, and a lot of it is you just have to be very knowledgeable about what's going on so that you can contextualize and mm. do like cohesive research in 30 minutes. Yeah. Our Aaron Lutz actually won extemporaneous at uh, NFA this last year. He puts a lot of effort into doing extemporaneous speaking, and he gives those kind of speeches a lot. Mm. So he's definitely like doing it consistently in a way that, uh, as all of these speeches are, it very much becomes like an idea of art, where you're perfecting what you want to do, and you are just continuously getting better at it. Yeah. Um, and then the last one is impromptu. It's much more short. It's you're given a quotation. You have two minutes to prep it. Um, you can take as much of those two minutes as you want, and then... Of a total of seven minutes, whenever you're done preparing your speech, you get up and you give it. Whoa. And so it's pretty, uh, it's much more fast-paced than Extemp is. Why are you given a quote? Uh, so it's generally quotations because you can draw upon, um, like, different ideas. Uh, sometimes they're mm. questions. Uh, it could really be any number of things, but the most common thing is you're given three quotations, mm. um, and then you just pick one, and then you give a speech on it. And I think, like, all of the speeches, being able to do any of these yeah. well is, like, an immeasurable skill yeah, to have in college. Yeah, such a talent. Yeah. And I had no idea that there was so much complexity within yeah. just the category of speech. Yeah, it's 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 a great time. Yeah, um, and I, I think... can imagine that these are really fun to watch and so yeah. informative. And yeah. in such a short amount of time, you're getting so much information. Yeah, um, some of the bigger tournaments we go to every year, um, Hell Froze Over, one of the ones that we really like to go to every year. One of my favorite aspects of it is, like, even if your events don't make it out of preliminary rounds, like, you get to spend all your time watching the yeah. events that did. Okay, great. Thank you so, so much yeah. for telling us about speech. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for, a debate between third-year Anthony Colshorn and second-year John Ropp on renewable energy. Anthony and John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Before we get into the debate, can you talk about the different debate categories that LC Debate does? LC Debate does two categories as of right now, parliamentary debate and Lincoln-Douglas debate. So parliamentary debate, the unique feature of parliamentary debate is that you don't get to know the topic prior to the tournament. You learn the topic 20 minutes before your debate, and then you have 20 minutes to prepare for the debate, and then you go out and debate that specific topic. As of right now, LC is moving away from parliamentary debate, and we're moving toward Lincoln-Douglas debate, which we're going to be focusing on over the next few years. Um, Lincoln-Douglas debate is different in that we learn the topic in the summer, beginning in the beginning of the year, and then we do that topic for the entire year, and it's essentially just like one year of research on that specific topic. Cool. And do all schools choose the same topic, and everyone's preparing for the same debate? Yes, all schools that do Lincoln-Douglas debate debate the same topic. And then you know which side you're going to debate beforehand. So we have to prepare for both sides because there's multiple rounds in a tournament and we usually debate on both sides in the same tournament. But for each specific round, we learn what side we're on like only a couple minutes before the round. Oh, interesting. And then, John, can you tell us about the debate that you'll be doing for us today? Uh, so the debate today will mirror a proper LD format, but it's going to be basically cut in half, and we're going to slow it down a bit. So there's going to be the same amount of speeches total, but just like half of the normal times that people would be speaking for. 
And there's also going to be a cross-examination period, which is shortened for this debate as well, where we're asking questions to the opposing side about their case, or just, like, general questions that we have. But for the most part, it should mirror what a college LD debate looks like. Great. Okay, let's get into it. So the topic for this year is the United States federal government should implement an energy policy that substantially increases investments in one or more of the following domestic energy sectors, nuclear, hydroelectric, geothermal, wind, and solar. I will begin the first half speech now. I affirm the resolution through the following plan text. The United States Department of the Treasury will issue green bonds, the proceeds of which will be used to provide investment for wind, solar, geothermal, nuclear, and hydroelectric energy projects. Eligibility for investment will be determined via the guidelines in the Climate Bonds Standard and Certification Scheme. Green bonds, to clarify, are just like any other bond, except that the investment is specifically earmarked for renewable energy. Having the state issue green bonds will spur massive investment in renewables. According to the Climate Bonds Initiative in March 2018, Green bond issuers have often reported a diversification of their investor base. The deal attracts new socially responsible investors. Poland experienced significant diversification, with green investors making up 61% of the investor pool, almost none of which have previously invested in sovereign bonds. The government can use issuance as a promotional tool to reinforce its sustainability agenda, such as in the case of France. Sovereign issuance will automatically raise the profile of green bonds with other potential issuers and indirectly set good practice issuance processes and standards for the whole market. It has been made clear that public funds will not be enough to cover the challenges posed by climate change. Mobilizing private capital towards the right investments will be paramount. The first advantage to this is climate change. It is not too late to reverse our current course. According to Umer Irfan, writing in Vox in 2018, states, We have just 12 years to make massive changes to global energy infrastructure to limit global warming. Saying at or below 1.5 degrees Celsius requires slashing global greenhouse gas emissions by 45% below 2010 levels by 2030. Meaning this goal demands extraordinary transition in energy. We still have the chance to limit warming. Green bonds are key to mitigate climate change. They are the best way to mobilize the capital necessary for energy transformation. According to Andy Wang, a professor from Columbia University, Finance is a role to play in confronting climate change, and green bonds could be one of the tools to do it. This financial mechanism is hugely important to providing sizable capital necessary to f- to needed to fuel uh, massive transformational projects such as constructing solar infrastructure and decarbonizing supply change. And resolving climate change must be our number one priority. Climate change would cause a global societal collapse. A study by Stratton Dunlop in 2019 writes... Policymakers fail to act on the Paris Agreement will lock in at least 3 degrees Celsius of warming. By 2050, this is far from an extreme scenario. Low probability high impact warming can exceed 3.5 to 4 degrees Celsius by 2050. The destabilization of the jet stream has very significantly affected the Asian and West African monsoons and is impinging life support systems in Europe. North America suffers from devastating weather extremes, and water flows to the Great Rivers of Asia are severely reduced. Um, a number of ecosystems collapse, contributing to more than a billion people being displaced, and water availability decreases, affecting about 2 billion people. Advantage is air pollution. Air and other types of pollution are a health hazard only renewable energy can solve. Uh, According to the World Health Organization in 2016, 12.6 million people die as a result of living in an unhealthy environment, nearly one in four total global deaths. Risk risk factors such as air and water and soil pollution contribute to more than 100 diseases and injuries. And renewables on net reduce pollution. According to a study authored by Gibbon et al. in in 2017, solar, wind, and hydropower have lower emissions for all classes of pollution than coal or gas power. Low carbon technologies cut human health impacts from power generation in half by 2050. And I am open for cross-examination. Okay, starting cross-ex now. Will the plan in any way reduce the United States military's reliance on fossil fuels? Um, I would suggest that, like, if we're moving away from fossil fuels in general, that would reduce the military's, reliance, the military's reliance on them. Okay. 
Um, have green bonds occurred in the past, and if so, what sectors of renewable energy were they most successful in? So I gave the example of France and Poland, which implemented essentially what I'm advocating for in the plan. And Poland, for example, experienced like a significant increase in investment in renewable energy, and in the case of France as well, especially in like the nuclear sector. Okay. Do you think the United States will focus more on solar and wind because they're succeeding, or do you think it's going to be evenly distributed? I mean, since solar and wind are succeeding right now, it would probably be focused on that, but I can see investments increasing for all types of renewable energy. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's good for now. I'll be starting the first negative constructive speech right now. First off is going to be the REM's disadvantage. Solar and wind require rare earth metals. The AF increases mining substantially, show 12. Solar cells depend on rare earth metals to function. To provide most of our power through renewables will take hundreds of times the amount of rare earth metals that we are mining today. Renewable energy technology cannot function without rare earth metals. Every megawatt of electricity needs 200 kilograms of neodymium, so if every big wind turbine produces one megawatt, five turbines will require one ton. And REM mining damages the environment and marginalizes and kills local populations, this is Klinger in 15. The mining process generates radioactive materials. All rare earth elements cause organ damage. Several corrode skin. Because rare earths tend to coincide with radioactive thorium and uranium, mining is also radioact a radioactive waste management situation. Every ton of rare earth produced generates approximately one ton of radioactive wastewater. If inhaled, these particles increase the risk of developing lung cancer. A few micrograms of radium in the body will cause the bones to go soft, teeth to fall out, gums to bleed, and cancer. And then on to the climate change advantage. You increase the cost of energy through battery storage, Temple 19. Lithium-ion storage systems are far too expensive and don't last nearly long enough. We could be headed down a dangerously unaffordable path. When renewables reach high levels on the grid, you need far, far more wind and solar plants to crank out enough excess power during peak times to keep the grid operating through those long seasonal dips. Building the level of renewable generation and storage necessary would drive up costs exponentially from $49 per megawatt hour of generation at 50% to $1,612 at 100%. And that's assuming lithium-ion batteries will cost roughly a third what they do now, meaning 80% of U.S. electricity demand with wind and solar would require a battery storage system that would cost more than $2.5 trillion. Integrating solar into the grid spikes energy prices for all the households. This is Canjack 19. California continues to lead the nation in mandating the deployment of solar power. Unfortunately, that translates into rising electricity costs that are now poised to climb higher. Since 2011, electricity prices in California have jumped 30%, the most expensive in the western United States. The expense of integrating them onto the grids is rising. Turn and no solvency. Solar doesn't work well, it harms the environment, and it leads to toxic waste. This is RUG19. Studies have shown that solar energy has a significant environmental disadvantage. Solar farms send ripples through the entire ecosystem. The environment can become less livable for plants and wildlife. Photovoltaic systems have throwaway batteries that can store energy so people can use it at night. These batteries leak toxins such as lead and sulfuric acid. The batteries that are required to store the electricity generated by photocells can contain a myriad of other dangerous substances like heavy metals and other dangerous substances. In turn, hydropower leads to an increase in methane, an air pollutant worse than CO2, Graham Row 19. Hydroelectric power can seriously damage the climate. The green image of hydropower as a benign alternative to fossil fuels is false. Hydroelectric dams produce significant amounts of carbon dioxide and methane, and in some cases produce more of these greenhouse gases than power plants running on fossil fuels. We do know that there are enough emissions to worry about. In 1990, the greenhouse effect of emissions from a dam in Brazil was more than three and a half times what would have been produced by generating the same amount of electricity from oil. And climate change will not cause extinction or a major societal collapse. The science doesn't support apocalyptic rhetoric. Home 19.
The IPCC report offers no evidence for human extinction. Climate science is fundamentally based on probabilistic forecasts which, uh, which underpin risk. There is a range of possible values for future global warming. It is also it is as false scientifically to say that climate future will be catastrophic as it is to say that it will be lukewarm. And on the air pollution advantage, increasing the size of renewable energy sources won't actually solve for emissions. Neemark 19. The U.S. military's carbon blueprint is enormous. Like corporate supply chains, it relies on an extensive global network of container ships, trucks, and cargo planes to supply its operations with everything from bombs to humanitarian aid and hydrocarbon fuels. And on the solvency, we can't expand renewables until the electric grid is upgraded. This means no solvency since the AF doesn't do that. NPR 19. To become 100% carbon-free, they need to get more clean power from other states. As we move toward a carbon-free grid, there are other parts of it that we don't know, including how they move renewable energy across long distances. We're going to need to have a lot of changes in the system to make a very high-penetration renewable system work. Open for cross-ex now. Okay, um, I will begin cross-ex now. So you talk about how the military has like a large like carbon footprint. Why does this necessarily mean that we wouldn't be able to transition to renewable energy effectively? I think just like the size of the U.S. military and the amount of funding that goes into it probably indicates that we are like relying on a system that is rooted in fossil fuels. So a lot of like those previous systems aren't going to be able to transition fast enough, and we're going to always default to having a stronger military. Do you happen to know what percentage of our carbon footprint the military makes up? I don't have that statistic in any of my evidence here, but it does say that uh, the military bought about 269,000 barrels of oil a day and emitted more than 25,000 kilotons of CO2 by burning those fuels, so it's pretty substantial. Okay. Do you think that, for example, fossil fuels would also have a really large negative impact on, for example, indigenous communities and marginalized communities? Yeah, I definitely say so. All right. So I'll just start the next speech. To give a brief overview, I'm going to start on their REM, or rare earth mineral disadvantage, then talk about the, their responses to my case. Is everyone ready? Sweet. So time will begin now. So first, let's talk about their REM disadvantage. I have three main responses to this. First of all, you can cross-apply the given et al. evidence that I read in my first speech. It talks about how when, even when we look at like all phases of production, renewable energy still tends to emit less you know, pollution and toxic waste than, for example, fossil fuels do, which means that, yes, while renewables are not perfect, they're still net better than fossil fuels, which means it's probably a good idea to transition to them. This leads to my second response, which is the fact that this isn't just a problem with renewables, it's a problem with the global economy in general. The fact is, is that the global economy tends to disadvantage certain groups, and that's something we should agitate against. However, again, this isn't just a problem with renewables. We can remember the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, where the uh, U.S. government used force in order to try and build a, an oil pipeline through indigenous territory. And what this indicates is that, again, fossil fuels can still have these negative effects, and we should probably, you know, agitate against a global economy that marginalizes certain groups, but not necessarily throw the baby out with the bathwater. And lastly, REM mining is going to increase regardless if we invest in more renewables. For example, REMs are used in, like, a lot of the technology we use, such as, like, computers, for example, which are going to increase in demand over the long term, which means that REM mining is probably going to increase regardless if we do the plan. Now let's move on to the responses to my case. First, they say that I'm going to increase um, the cost of electricity. I have a couple of responses to this. First of all, right now, the point is that like the plan will try and decrease energy costs because we're increasing investment in it and like you know increasing the supply of, that we have of of renewable energy, which means that. The, yeah, sure, like energy costs are high now, but like after the plan, they'll probably decrease, which would probably be a good thing. But furthermore, they talk about how battery storage is going to increase costs. How the problem here is that there's investment right now into increase our efficiency of battery storage in order to try and fix this, which means that this probably isn't going to be an issue for the long term. 
Next, they read this evidence that suggests that solar is toxic and how methane is, uh, and how methane gets emitted from hydroelectric. However, again, you can cross apply the Gibbon et al. evidence, which talks about how, which is an empirical study, which suggests that you know on net renewables tend to emit less pollution and less toxic waste. So like, yeah, while renewables again are not perfect, when we compare them to the alternatives, which are fossil fuels, renewables tend to be a lot better. Next, they say that climate change won't lead to extinction. We agree that it probably won't lead to extinction, but it'll still be it'll still be pretty bad. For example, billions of people will be displaced and will lose access to water, according to the Spratt and Dunlap evidence, which we talk about. Lastly, they talk about how um, they read this evidence that suggests that because of the fact that the military is using a lot of carbon dioxide, we're not going to be able to resolve the issues of carbon emissions. However, the problem here is that the military, although it is still a large user of fossil fuels, they still make up only a smaller proportion of like the total global consumption, which means that we're still going to be able to reduce a lot of pollution on net, which according to the World Health Organization evidence, we're going to be saving millions of lives and we're probably going to be able to reduce the effect of climate change. On my opponent's responses to my REM's disadvantage, the first response is essentially that renewables are inevitably going to emit less and cause less damage to the environment than uh, fossil fuels are, but the problem here is that fossil fuels are less commonly found and mined in indigenous communities, and our evidence indicates specifically that REM's are mined in indigenous communities in a harmful way, which is something they haven't refuted. The second response is that the global economy disadvantages minorities and indigenous populations, but we would say this is a reason as to why the federal government is not going to be able to solve these issues in the first place place and why the institution of green bonds is not going to be enough because the system is inevitably turned against uh, minorities and the indigenous populations of the United States. And the final argument is that this is going to happen regardless and that REM mining is increasing in the status quo. But our argument is specifically that we've seen a stalling in renewable energy development and we've also seen a reduction in the supply of REMs in the current global climate. But as demand increases, we're going to need to find them in different places, which is probably going to cause a search for more REMs in the future in the world of the affirmative. On to the affirmative's first advantage of climate change. Some of the first responses they make is that the plan is going to decrease costs long term because it's going to cause investment and that that's going to, the innovation will reduce the overall cost of the system. But the issue here is that we haven't actually seen this and you can cross apply the evidence that says that it actually increased costs for all houses in California by roughly 30%. And this evidence indicates that although it might not be increasing costs for corporations or the private sector, it is increasing costs for uh, individuals and families. And second, Secondly, they say that investment now is going to be able to fix battery storage, but we see that this hasn't been solved yet. And secondly, we read a piece of evidence that says it's going to cost $2.5 trillion to resolve this and store all of this energy. So regardless, you have to assume that the plan costs $2.5 trillion, which regardless of whether or not they're able to pay for that will take a long time. The next argument that they make is that renewables are better than fossil fuels in terms of uh, emissions, uh, methane, toxic waste from solar batteries, etc. We see the problem here is that the massive implementation of solar and, and hydroelectric is going to be more localized in places that individuals live or they reside, which probably means that that type of uh, pollution is going to affect their lives more specifically. And then on the argument about how uh, climate change won't cause a societal collapse or extinction, they say that it still causes displacement. But if you go back and look at the evidence that we read, it specifically indicts this argument of societal displacement and says that it's not going to have the impact at the scale that they explain it. And then on the second advantage of air pollution, they say that we can net reduce pollution by um, investment and then the military is going to reduce. But the issue here is that these green bonds are going to be going to private agencies or private corporations that aren't necessarily going to be obliged to uh, give this uh, technology to the military. And secondarily, we see that the military is always going to prioritize 
profit and efficiency, which in the current status quo is probably going to mean using fossil fuels and maintaining uh, the infrastructure of the past that uses fossil fuels instead of renewable energy, which means that they're not going to be able to solve the carbon footprint question. Climate change is not going to be resolved with green bonds. So the last uh, half speech, which will be two minutes, will start now. The reason why you're going to be voting affirmative in this debate is because of the fact that we save millions of lives by reducing uh, pollutants, and furthermore, we also help reduce the effects of climate change. Their response to air pollution and advantage too is mainly that the military still uses a lot of a lot of carbon dioxide. But the problem here is that my argument that they didn't adequately respond to suggests that again, although the military does use a lot of carbon dioxide, they're not like the largest user, like they're not the largest user in the world. And furthermore, they still make up a smaller percentage of total global use, which means we're still going to be reducing air pollutants by a substantial margin, even if we don't reduce military usage. And the World Health Organization again suggests that that saves millions of lives. Furthermore, on advantage one, again, they say their extension of the arguments that like how solar is toxic and how uh, methane comes from uh, hydropower is that these particular types of pollutants are heavily localized. But for example, so is fossil fuels. For example, I gave the example of the DAPL. What we need to address here is the fact that which on net has less pollutants. Overall, the one that has less pollutants is going to be, again, solar, um, hydropower, uh, wind, which again is from the Gibbon, the Gibbon evidence, which is again an empirical study which looks at the you know the amount of pollutants that over the long term from these particular energy sources and suggests that overall renewables are going to be re- reducing the amount of pollutants in the air, even if they're not necessarily perfect and net pollute zero. And lastly, in response to how they say I'm going to be increasing energy costs, I'd make the suggestion that even if energy costs increase, we'd still try and prefer like you know trying to promote the health of every human being and trying to save millions of lives that are lost due to air pollution. So even if there is an increase in cost, we suggest that the affirmative is still better on this question. Overall, that's still a reason why you'd want to prefer the affirmative. And then again, in terms of their REM disadvantage, they suggest that I increase use of REMs, which means that like I, I increase pollution from REMs. However, again, the given at all evidence is good on this because it indicates that in all phases of production, renewables are still going to be net better than fossil fuels, which means that you're still going to be preferring renewables over fossil fuels on this question. Thank you, guys. I have a few questions for you about your experience with debate. Anthony, how do you prepare for a debate? So, like, throughout the entire year, we're doing research, so it's kind of like a never-ending process. Mm-hmm. Um, when we get closer and closer to our tournament, the amount of research we do tends to ramp up substantially, you know, making edits to our positions and stuff like that. I try to also do, you know, drills as much as possible, especially in the weeks coming up to our tournament. Do you ever argue for a side? I'm sure you do. But when you argue for a side that you don't necessarily agree with, how does the research that you do impact how you might have perceived that argument beforehand? And does it ever make you more open-minded to different perspectives? Um, I would say that it definitely helps make us more open-minded to different perspectives. Um, we tend to learn like a lot of new perspectives, not just like perspectives that um, we may have already disagreed with or agreed with. When it comes to stuff that we already disagree with, it's kind of like something that's kind of case by case. Like sometimes we come across something that I originally thought was wrong and then I do more research and then I find out that it's, you know, oh, maybe this isn't actually as you know bad as I thought it was. But also a lot of times it reaffirms my position because if we ever have to argue for something we disagree with, we have to try and come up with like the best possible argument for it. Right. And if the be- if I still don't agree with the best possible argument for it, then that, uh, I, for me that's a good indication that like, well, I probably don't end up believing this. Yeah. Do you agree, John? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I was going to give an example that kind of shows that. So in debate, often we'll debate whether or not like 
the affirmatives plan is going to cause a certain candidate to get elected or a certain president to stay in office. So for this topic, we've had to do some research on like what happens if Trump stays in office versus if a Democrat is elected. Um, so sometimes you'll have to defend that, or you won't have to, but you can defend that Trump winning is not a bad thing. Um, so doing some research into like what parts of Trump's policy might be good for society is very interesting because it forces you to like think about things that you would never really think about as advantageous to society. And even though like I don't necessarily agree with it, it's very interesting. Yeah. And that's the end of the sixth episode of the Piopod. Links to learn more about LC speech and debate are in the description. Follow Pioneer Log on Instagram for podcast updates. Before we leave, we have an exciting announcement. We have hired a new head of broadcasting here at the Pioneer Log, so Matteo Kaiser will be producing the podcast next semester. We're so excited that he will be joining the team, and we have some exciting episodes in the works already. As always, if you have suggestions for topics you would like us to cover, email us at thepiopod at lclark.edu. Happy holidays! See you all in January.